0: You're listening to Credo on Radio Maria, a program that nourishes you in your Catholic faith with me, Tim Hutchinson, who will be facilitating today, and with Father Richard Almsworth. Hello, Father.
1: Hello, how are you?
0: Very good. Father has been waving excitedly. So am no-
1: waving excitedly, even though you're the only person that can see me. <laughs>
0: um, and uh, we've been going through the book of Matthew, which has been very exciting. Once a month, it's going to take us a long time. Um,
1: well we're more than halfway through
0: that's true that's true um and it's 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 always very interesting it's it's fun to actually follow along with your bible if you can do that if you're not driving um don't do it if you are driving that would not be wise but um yeah we did chapter 14 last week uh, last time
1: so they tell me (laughs) so i thought i thought i'd do chapter 15 this week if that's all right
0: yes no i you have my permission
1: Excellent. In that case, I shall crack on. Yes. Will so you begin with a prayer? I will with pleasure. Yes, of course. Yeah. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and enkindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your spirit, and they shall be created, and thou shalt renew the face of the earth. O God, who has taught the hearts of the faithful by the light of the Holy Spirit, grant that by the gift of that same Spirit we may be always truly wise and ever rejoice in his consolations through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. And I should also begin by wishing everybody a very happy feast day Mm. and to say I hope you've all been to mass or are planning to go. And I had a full church at lunchtime which was delightful. Now Matthew chapter 15 um, mostly deals with I suppose the relationship between Christianity and Judaism or perhaps better to say the relationship between Christianity and Israel I was thinking as I was reading it we will come across in a moment the district of Tyre and Sidon and the Canaanite woman and I was thinking you know have things changed in the last 2,000 years have things changed even in the last 4,000 years we've it feels like when you open the newspapers or look on the internet today, we're fighting the same wars that were being fought long before Christ was ever born in the Holy Land. So let's all spare a prayer for all those involved in that seemingly never ending war. Anyway, more on that shortly. Matthew 15 begins with uh, some Pharisees having a go at Jesus for as they put it breaking the tradition of the elders because his disciples don't wash their hands before they eat and it's worth saying I think to begin with that there is no commandment that you should wash your hands before you eat in the old testament um it's not a bad idea as a matter of fact um It's something that we were commanded to do by our parents, but it is not in the scriptures. However, there are regulations about how priests should wash before they eat. And one common theory about the Pharisees is that they wanted to adopt priestly rules for themselves, even though they weren't priests. So it was, in a way... A kind of making priestly or making sacred family life Uh, uh, if you like bringing the holiness of the temple into the home by observing temple and priestly regulations in your everyday life that's one theory about the Pharisees actually we know as I've probably said before very little about them but it might be true so there's no reason why Jesus's disciples should wash their hands before they eat. At least no reasons other than personal hygiene, but I've often thought it looks, reading between the lines, as though the Pharisees did have some kind of expectation that Jesus was, if not one of them, something very like them. I wouldn't be at all surprised if we were finally able to crack the problem of time travel and go back in time and observe Jesus, that he might from the outside have looked very much like a Pharisee. Anyway, Christ has no time for this criticism and responds, why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, honor your father and your mother, but you say, whoever tells father or mother what support you might have had from me is given to God, then that person need not honor the father. So for the sake of your tradition, you make void the word of God. And this does seem to have been a thing that you could sort of take all your money and say, I'm dedicating all of this money to the temple. I'm dedicating all of it to uh, sacred religious worship. So therefore, sorry, mom, sorry, dad, nothing left for you. And Jesus is saying this is a kind of legalistic loophole making, which misses the whole point of the law, which is the honor of father and mother. For the sake of your tradition, you make void the word of God, you hypocrites. Uh, In vain do you worship me, he says, quoting Isaiah, teaching human precepts as doctrines. So we've already got the point that, you know, before you start thinking about traditions and maybe the rules and regulations that surround the divine law and ensure that it is upheld, A, you have to make sure you're not following those traditions instead of upholding the law, and B, you have to make sure that they actually do uphold and support the law and not go against it and although we are in a very different situation now of course it is true that the church has laws there's a whole book of them on my shelves behind me the code of canon law and very gripping it is too it's always the task of the church to ensure that the laws that it makes and imposes upon the faithful are always there to help them towards holiness and not to hinder them. The law, for example, about going to Mass on All Saints Day is there to help us to be holy and not to hinder us. But Christ goes a lot further in this passage because what he's really interested in is the question of defilement. And this rule that the Pharisees had, which is, as I say, a rule that really only applied to priests about hand-washing is part of that whole complex of rules, regulations, and traditions that we find in the scriptures and the Jewish tradition around the notion of ritual purity. And ritual purity, I've spoken about this before, is really about avoiding death, actually. It's about the notion that things to do with death and sin, make you defiled, make you ritually impure, um, because death is bad, I suppose to put it bluntly. Death is bad, death is a consequence of sin. And so those things that are reminding us of death or have a certain death-like quality, e.g. leprosy, Those things are ritually defiling. And then this whole system of taboos grows up around that, which we find both within and beyond the scriptures. Christ's point is, as he goes on to say, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but it is what comes out of the mouth that defiles. And a little later on, he uh, explains this to his disciples when Peter, as he is wont to do, says, explain this to us. Christ says, do you not see? Whatever goes into the mouth enters the stomach and goes out into the sewer. Actually, the word in, in Greek is a bit ruder than sewer, but I won't defile your ears with it. What comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and that is what defiles. For out of the heart come evil intentions, murder, adultery, fornication, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person to eat with unwashed hands, does not defile. So Christ is taking traditions that evolved around ritual purity... He's not saying those are absolutely without value, but he is saying, I think, that if they are not there to point us towards and to to help us to understand the ethical demands that God makes upon us, then they are ultimately valueless. But I think there's a stronger point as well here. What comes out of the heart can defile you. It is to be rendered impure, to be rendered filthy, as filthy as that which is flushed away into the sewer. We are defiled, befouled by the sins that we commit, and especially notice what comes out of the mouth. The number of times I find myself saying both to myself Um, in in moments when I am conscience-stricken, but also to penitence in the confessional. Something we all need to learn to do is keep a watch over our mouths. I often find myself reciting the line from the psalm, Lord, set a guard over my mouth, keep watch over my lips. We, you know, thoughts arise in our minds, unbidden feelings Feelings of anger, feelings of irritation, feelings of dislike or envy, whatever it might be. Of themselves, these may not be sinful. The way you feel is never a sin. Thoughts that you didn't choose to have can't be sinful. But how do we respond to them? What do we allow to come out of our mouths? Words of hatred, words of anger, words of cursing and disgust, These things, not only do they create misery and sorrow in our relationships and in the hearts of other people, but they defile us. This is what Christ is telling us. It is so much more serious a thing to allow your dislike or your irritation to express itself in unkindness or cruelty than it is to break some ritual commandment, such as eating with unwashed hands. But let me just emphasize once again, we are all in favor in this priory of personal hygiene. That, I think, concludes uh, the first section of Matthew. So perhaps if nobody has any objection, we might break for a little piece of music.
0: I right, certainly. So- I suddenly not, will not object. Um, and I've got a nice piece uh, by the monks and choir boys of Downside, St. Ave Maria Stella. So here it is. And we'll be back talking about um, St. Matthew's Gospel directly after listening to this. listening to Credo on Radio Maria that was uh, the monks of Downside and the Choir Boys singing Ave Maria Stella and we've been going through the book of Matthew with Father Richard Owensworth we're currently on chapter 15.
1: We are indeed and we have just dealt with this question about uh, purity That which renders us impure is that which comes out of us, not that which goes into us. It's worth noting, um, we are following St. Mark again here. Um, This is one of those passages where Matthew is running parallel to Mark fairly closely, though he does dial down um, some of the phraseology of Mark. Notably in this passage in Mark's gospel, Mark has the editorial comment thus Jesus made all foods clean, which is a controversial interpretation to say the least. Um, But it is also certainly the case that the church is very clear that there are no ritually impure foods. We can eat anything, Um, witness Peter's vision of the blanket covered in all sorts of weird foods that comes down from heaven in the acts of the apostles. Now, we move on, and initially, it seems as though there is no connection to the next passage, which, still following the, the order of Mark's gospel, is Christ's encounter with the Canaanite woman. I think in Mark, she's a Syrophoenician woman, but it amounts to the same thing. We are in the district of Tyre and Sidon which I think is in modern day Lebanon, if memory serves, I must confess, I've never been. All I know about fire is that that's where you would go for the best purple dye. Maybe we'll have more on that story another day. Anyway, the woman comes to Jesus. We're in a Gentile region and she says, my daughter is tormented by a demon. Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. So She acknowledges not only that Christ is Lord, even though she's a Canaanite and not Jewish, but also that he is son of David and therefore implicitly that to be the Jewish Messiah is to be the Lord. She acknowledges, if you will, the the, the claims of Judaism in, in regard to religious primacy, if you like. He did not answer her at all, and his disciples came and urged him, saying, send her away, for she keeps shouting after us. He does at this point respond to her, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And she asks him again, Lord, help me. He said, it is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. This is, of course, extraordinarily insulting. She is fully acknowledging his authority as the Jewish Messiah, as the descendant of David, and he responds by calling her a dog. Not very polite, and perhaps even more impolite than we might realize, because in the Jewish tradition, as is now the case, I think, for a lot of Muslims as well, you don't keep pet dogs. Dogs are unclean. Dogs are scavengers more like rats rather than pets so to describe somebody as a dog is to describe them as like a rat like a vulture like some uh, you know it's not at all a nice thing to say and it's also very striking and not unproblematic that he says I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel I've noticed that a lot of the commentaries and sermons on this passage as well tend to say, well, Jesus is talking about how he came first to the Israelites. His first mission is to Israel and only later to the Gentiles. But he doesn't say, I was sent primarily or firstly to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He says only. Now, we know that the Gentile mission, the conversion of the nations to Christ and to the God of Israel is a legitimate project. We've been doing it for the last 2000 years and Paul's pretty keen on it. But at the same time, Christ does not go to the Gentiles. The conversion of the Gentiles begins after the resurrection. In fact, as we'll see in a few months time, at the very end of the gospel, after the resurrection, Christ on the high mountain sends his apostles after his resurrection to the Gentiles. Go, therefore, to all the nations, teaching them to obey all I have commanded and baptizing them, etc. So he, she is, in a certain sense, asking him to anticipate the resurrection you might say, by doing for a Gentile what he, in fact, has only come to do for the people of Israel. So he responds with this remark about dogs, and she comes back with a very clever response, I think. Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Um, It's interesting, isn't it, that Jesus has these very fascinating conversations especially with women Uh, think of his conversation with his mother at the wedding at Cana um, with Mary Magdalene after the resurrection with the Samaritan woman at the well and here with the Canaanite or Syrophoenician woman Jesus and women I'm sure somebody's done a doctorate on it. And if they haven't, perhaps one of you would like to. I've done mine and I'm not doing another one. Um, anyway, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. She accepts her role that he has given her as a scavenger. And she says, Yes, you are the master. The people of Israel are the legitimately invited diners. But. Even the dogs get to eat something, even if it's only crumbs. Extraordinarily humble. And we might place ourselves in that same position. We also eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. But think about what that master's table is now for us. Is it not the table of the Eucharist? I like to think that's what we are doing when we receive the host. These are crumbs that fall from the heavenly table, that heavenly banquet, which in the fullness of time, we all hope to enjoy in eternity. Those, the crumbs that fall from that table are the Eucharist that we eat now to sustain us and to give us that same mercy and help that she asks for, and that same healing that she seeks for her daughter. Just one, um, by the way, comment. It's particularly apt for me to think of myself as one of the dogs eating the crumbs from the master's table as a Dominican. As I'm sure some of you will know, we are the dogs of the Lord. Our student brothers have a uh, a blog called God's Dogs. I'm afraid that they spell gods and dogs with a Z like some kind of 1990s boy band. But there we are. What can you do? Um, the reason for this is uh, that Dominican Dominicans in Latin, Dominicans, if you separate it into two words, is Domini Carnes, dogs of the Lord. And there is a tradition that St. Dominic's mother, when she was pregnant with him, had a vision of a dog with a torch in its mouth running all over the world um, and setting fire to everything that it touched. And then, of course, later on, she realized that that had been a prophecy of the fire of the gospel, the fire of truth, which her son and his followers would spread as they preached the gospel. So we are the dogs of the Lord, but I'm suggesting to you that all of us, even those without the good fortune to be Dominicans can be dogs of the Lord eating the Eucharistic crumbs that fall from the heavenly table. We can do this provided that the Lord can truly say to us what he says to her in response to this remark, which is, woman, great is your faith. Only if we have faith can we receive what what we do receive um, at least to receive it worthily and efficaciously so great is your faith he says let it be done for you as you wish and her daughter was healed instantly just a final remark on this passage i said initially there doesn't seem to be much of a connection but of course the connection is the distinctiveness of the jewish people the people of israel and their relationship with the Gentiles. One of the things that Jewish people consider most defiling is contact with the Gentiles. Christ is in a Gentile region. So the very fact of setting foot in these places would defile him, like eating with unwashed hands. Um, To sit down and eat a meal with a Gentile was considered to render you ritually impure and defiling. So basically for the Jewish people, all of the nations, apart from them themselves, are considered ritually unclean, tainted, if you will, by the shadow of death and not worthy to be touched, untouchable, uh, to coin a phrase. Um, But here is Christ moving among the untouchables. And as we so often see in his ministry, not becoming defiled himself, but rather overcoming the power of defilement. It's as if, whereas normally it's impurity that is infectious, Christ's purity is so powerful because he is the source of purity that it itself is more infectious and overcomes the infectious power of the defilement of death and sin. So there is this question about, you know, the relationship between the people of Israel and the Gentiles, and Christ is overcoming the barriers, even as he's insisting that at this point, at least before the resurrection, he is only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That concludes this second chunk of St. Matthew's Gospel. So maybe it's time for another piece of music.
0: Indeed. We shall listen to a version of The Lord is My Shepherd by Catherine Jenkins. You're listening to Credo on Radio Maria. We're going through the book of St. Matthew's Gospel with Father Richard Unsworth. That was Catherine Jenkins singing The Lord is my shepherd, shepherd. My shepherd. You're listening to Credo on Radio Maria. We're going through the book of Matthew with Father Richard Alnsworth, currently on chapter fifteen. Do you think we'll finish it this today, Father Richard? The
1: chapter, yes. Oh yes, definitely. Wonderful. Well yeah, not the gospel. What was that? Not the gospel, but we will finish not the, the gospel.
0: Chapter. All right. <laughs> No, that would be completely out of character.
1: (laughs) It would, wouldn't it? So we are, oh yeah, we're about two thirds of the way through chapter 15 now. And we've had two very clear and distinct chunks of the story, as I've said, basically taken from Mark's gospel, if the standard scholarly view is to be believed, which I think probably it is in this regard after the story of the healing of the daughter of the Canaanite woman, Jesus leaves and passes along the Sea of Galilee, goes up a mountain, sits down, and people bring um, cripples of various kinds to him, and he cures them, and the crowd is amazed, and they praise the God of Israel. Just a couple of verses which are sort of I think, transitional in a certain sense, and just to remind us that this is the kind of thing that's going on all the time in Jesus's ministry. So we often get, more common in Mark than in Matthew, but we have them in Matthew as well, these kind of little chunks of fairly generic material that's just, as it were, the background drone or the background hum of Christ's Ministry of Healing and Exorcisms before we come to the next story proper which is the story of the feeding of the 4,000 and it's a very strikingly similar story to the feeding of the 5,000 including the way in which it begins. Christ says to his disciples, I have compassion for the crowd because they've been with me now for three days and have nothing to eat. And as I very often like to point out, that word for having compassion, um, it's a bit of a weak translation, really. Um, The Greek word, which I think is just glorious, is blanknizomai. Um, which comes from the word splankna, which is your bowels. Um, Christ has, as we've already seen, referred to the bowels once in this chapter, but the bowels, as well as being responsible for our digestion, are in the ancient imagination, the seat of what one might call sentiment. What we do with our hearts in the modern world you know, feelings and lovey-dovey stuff. That is done a foot or so lower down in the ancient world and we reserve our hearts for thinking and choosing. So you think with your heart, you feel with your guts and there's something very sort of gutsy, very something earthy about Christ's language here. It's not just that he feels compassion in some kind of wishy-washy way for the crowd. He is gutted, literally, on their behalf. His bowels are twisted with anguish at the suffering of those whom he sees in hunger. I do not want to send them away hungry for they might faint on the way he says, and the disciples this time around recognize that he is inviting them to do something about it. So there is some kind of improvement in their understanding, but despite the fact that they have already witnessed the feeding of the 5,000, which is a few chapters earlier, they say, where are we to get enough bread in the desert to feed so great a crowd? Jesus asked them, how many loaves have you? They said, seven and a few small fish. A lot of deja vu going on here. Christ has the crowd sit down on the ground. He takes the loaves and the fish. He gives thanks. He breaks them. He gives them to the disciples. The disciples give them to the crowd. It's almost a word for word repeat apart from the numbers. Seven loaves this time. Seven is a number traditionally associated with completeness, but in this context, probably more likely to do with uh, the fact that we are now in a Gentile region. We're still in Canaan, probably. There is a tradition you find in the Old Testament, uh, especially in the book of Deuteronomy, that the Canaanites are made up of seven distinct tribes. So it's probably a reference to this and I think this is the whole point of this story. Why repeat the story? Saint Luke actually leaves it out. It's in Mark and Matthew but not Luke. Um, Presumably Luke thinks one of these two almost exactly identical stories will do and that's not an unreasonable thing to think so why have two? Precisely to make the point that Christ is now moving on to feed the gentiles he is not it has to be said he is not calling them to repentance he's not preaching the gospel to them explicitly but at the same time he is pointing the way to the post-resurrection ministry of his church and you'll notice again he gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the crowds It points, just as the feeding of the 5,000 obviously does, to the Eucharist, and that's made even more explicit in St John's Gospel. Um, And it points in particular to the Eucharistic ministry of the apostles and the successors of the apostles, which are the bishops, and those who assist the bishops in this regard, which is to say the priests of the church to feed the people of God with that which has been handed on by the risen Christ. The Eucharist, the crumbs that fall from the master's table is the body of that risen Christ who appeared to the apostles after the resurrection and commissioned them to go out into the world. So, This is all very Eucharistic, it's very mission-oriented as well. And we are told all of them ate and were filled, and they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. Interesting, perhaps, more bread, feeds fewer people, and with less leftovers than in the feeding of the 5,000, where you have 5,000 people fed by five loaves and two fishes and there are 12 baskets left over. I'm sure there's some deep significance in all of these numbers, though precisely what it is, I honestly couldn't tell you. But it's certainly about this ongoing relationship between the church, Israel, and the Gentiles, how those things all fit together. And that's the sort of common thread that brings chapter 15 into some kind of unity. Um, It's worth noting, by the way, in the next chapter, which we'll deal with uh, next month, um, Jesus refers back to both of these miracles. So it's not as if St. Matthew's made some kind of mistake in having the same story twice. We'll see, as I said, in chapter 16, Jesus says... Do you remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? So Matthew and Jesus in Matthew's gospel are very conscious of the doubling up and of the nuanced differences in the numbering. Precisely what they mean, I'm honestly not entirely sure. Matthew's Gospel is really profoundly concerned with this question of how does Christianity and the Christian church and Christian practice relate to the Judaism from which it springs. It's much more overtly concerned about that issue than certainly than Mark and Luke, I think differently concerned from John's gospel. I I don't think it's a coincidence that Matthew and John in their gospels are more interested in these questions and are the two Jewish apostles who wrote their gospels, whereas uh, Luke and Mark, well, not necessarily Jewish anyway, we don't know. They don't have Jewish names as Matthew and John do. So it's obviously a live concern for them. It's probably a live concern for the people for whom they were writing. Anyway, after sending away the crowds, Jesus got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. I'm going to freely confess to you that I have no idea where the region of Magadan is. Actually, some texts read Magdala or Magdalen, so this could be the place that uh, Mary Magdalene comes from. I'm pretty certain it's a Jewish region, so he's returning now from his sojourn among the Gentiles to go back and dwell among the Jews and consider his mission to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And there we conclude chapter 15,
2: The steps of this desiccation The height of these scraping towers The width of this waste And I see potential for action Inside for a treasure Take a hold of this earthen vessel won worn and weary but They'll hold for action I'm a dog with a torch in my mouth
0: That was the Heelbilly Thomas singing, I'm a Dog. And if you missed the earlier part of the conversation, you're probably wondering why I went um, from Catherine Jenkins to that. Um, but the reason is that uh, Father Richard who who is our guest today on Crater, was saying that
1: um, the
0: Dominicans are known to be
1: dogs. <laughs> <laughs> dogs of the Lord, yes, indeed. <laughs> Incidentally, Tim, of course, I don't know if you intended it, there's a nice connection between the Lord is my shepherd and I am a dog because, you know, we are the sheep dogs, oh. are we not, of the Lord who is our shepherd? Wow. There's wow. a sermon in that which I will endeavor to remember to preach one day.
0: Okay. Yeah, I no, it did not. Um, that was not intended, but no. we will. I mean, those kinds of things happen. Um they, yeah, so that was, I actually really enjoyed listening to that. I haven't listened to it in a long time. And um, Father Toby always makes the point that when we play the Bully Thomas, that uh, uh, Father Joseph, did you say it's Joseph White? Thomas, Thomas White, Joseph. Thomas Joseph White. Got two of the names right. Um, is one of the leading theologians at the moment.
1: Oh, absolutely, yes. The um, magnificent director of the Angelicum University. Um, a wonderful writer. His writing is... So clear and readable, but at the same mm. time, really, really good theology. I would heartily recommend his writing to absolutely anybody.
0: And then he writes uh, these, these what would you call them? Bluesgrass songs.
1: Bluegrass, uh, yeah, bluegrass. Yeah. I would say, yeah, bluegrass. It's good good yeah. stuff.
0: Very good. Love it. Re- really nice. So, one of the questions I had for you, if we don't get yes. anyone calling in, the number is zero one two two three three seven five five six four. If you want to call. Um, so the question that I had was, uh, you, you, you mentioned that you had canon law behind you, and uh, the word you used was, oh, I wrote it down,
1: gripping. <laughs> of course, it is. <laughs> so you want to
0: read? You weren't being sarcastic.
1: Well, um, I suppose it depends on one's personality. When we were novices, we were taken to Italy uh, by our novice master on a quote-unquote pilgrimage, uh, which was a pilgrimage, but it was also a, a nice holiday. Mm. Um, and I took with me the code of canon law and and read it with great pleasure and interest on uh, various train journeys between Bologna and Florence and Rome. Mm-hmm. I think the my fellow novices thought that that was a bit eccentric. But Father Robert Ombres, who taught us canon law, uh, it still lives at Blackfriars in Oxford. He makes the point that canon law is applied ecclesiology. The laws of the church that it gives for, I mean, a lot of it is, is mainly for priests and religious, but much of it also applies to everybody. Those laws are an expression of the way in which the church understands itself. So you can learn a lot about what the church is and considers itself to be by the laws that it makes for its people and the way in which it organizes itself as a a legal entity.
0: Okay now can you have this as one book you said you had the code of canon law?
1: Oh yeah it's only about uh, I was I was about to do a finger gesture which is not going to be helpful for your (laughs) listeners but it's um it's the size of a how many fingers? Um, large paperback, or um, uh, three, three fingers three maybe? Fingers thing fingers okay. wide. So it's not, it's not huge.
0: All our listeners are now putting up their fingers, and <laughs> I hope considering so. it, yeah.
1: uh, I'm sure you can buy it very cheaply from uh, all well-known um, online <laughs> book retailers.
0: I'd love to see the Amazon reviews for that. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Well, I, now, of course, I'm going to have to go to the Amazon website and have a look.
0: Oh, <laughs> uh, that's funny. All right, yeah, no, that that is very interesting. So, um, I know that this is kind of not not really what what the program is about. We're not it's we we're looking at uh, Saint Matthew's Gospel, but, anyways, it's still interesting to kind of to ask you because because you know, um, what is is there a way in which canon law is divided into different laws? Because recently, the concept of law has been actually coming up with uh sunday's gospel everyone's talking about jewish laws and
1: um... uh, yeah it, it it is um i mean honestly it's such a long time since i studied it you are asking absolutely the wrong man mm. um but it, yes it does it does fall into different sections so there's sections dealing with um management of um property and money the sections dealing with um, you know, religious life and and uh, the duties of priests and bishops, the sections dealing with what they call delicts, which is basically the canon law equivalent of crimes. Hmm. It's it, A lot of it is stuff that priests have to know, uh, or at least know there's something to know. Okay. So if, if somebody comes to you wanting to get married and they're wanting to marry somebody who's not a Catholic, you have to know... That they need a dispensation and if they want to marry somebody who's not baptized you have to know that they need that dispensation from the bishop and you can't just go through with it without getting the dispensation because then they won't be married. Um, if you're hearing confessions and somebody confesses to punching a bishop in the face you need to know that that brings with it an automatic excommunication reserved to the bishop himself you can't you can't just absolve them and, until they've had recourse to the bishop
0: the same bishop
1: uh the diocesan bishop i think it would no be. i mean the bishop you punched no no i think it would be the bishop of the diocese you live in okay i think but as i say <laughs> do not quote me on this i am not an expert i just know enough to know when i have to look something up
0: right now that is very interesting in fact i i could have asked you more questions on that we kind of um have run out of time though we're coming up to the top of the hour and we need to go to our next program but um next time we're gonna be doing chapter 16 i imagine
1: i suppose we probably will yeah Yeah. that
0: would that would make sense having what good well um it was that was fun i enjoyed um I enjoyed listening to the interpretation, especially of the Zyra Phoenician woman, and yeah, their,
1: fascinating stuff.
0: Yeah, that is a very, very interesting piece of scripture, I must say, and and not an easy one to to pick apart. But I think the explanation you gave was uh, was helpful. If you're listening and you're thinking, "Wow, what was that?" I only tuned in. Well, you'll have to get the podcast, which will be out in a few days, um, or get the rebroadcast at 4 a.m. in the morning if you're up that early. And um, thank you, Father Richard. Would
1: you say, say a short prayer for us? Yes, I will do that with pleasure. And I think today I would like to pray especially for peace in the Middle East. As I remarked at the beginning of the program, it feels like this war, well, this war has been going on for literally thousands of years. Nevertheless, Almighty God, we ask you to pour out the spirit of your peace and justice upon all the peoples of the Middle East open their hearts and their eyes to recognize their common humanity, Mm -hmm. to know the right way to act in accordance with your law. We ask you to pour out your blessing upon all of us as we read and seek to understand your holy scriptures that our eyes may be opened, our mouths also to preach your word and our hearts to receive it in holiness and joy. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen.
2: Hello, my name is Tommy. And my name is Patrick. And my name is Martin. We, we love, love Radio Maria. Maria. I like listening to the Mass in the morning. And I like listening to the Rosary. And I listen listening to Mass. A family, A family that prays, prays together, together stays
3: together.
2: together. And the family stays together and pray together.
1: To donate, please visit radiomariaengland.uk
0: or call 0300 302 1251. That's
1: 0300 302 1251. Thank you so much.